Hello and welcome to One to Grow On, a show where we dig into questions about agriculture and try to understand how food production impacts us and our world. My name is Hallie Casey and I studied and currently work in agriculture. And I'm Chris Casey, Hallie's dad. Each episode we pick an area of agriculture or food production to discuss. And this week we're talking about glyphosate. So dad, what do you know about glyphosate? I know that glyphosate is... In Roundup. Oh, good. I didn't know you knew that. Congrats. Yep. And I know it's an herbicide. Uh Uh-huh. And I know, well, I don't know. Um, I'm pretty sure that, you know, it's not necessarily great, but also maybe it's one of those things that's like not quite as horrible as everyone makes it out to be. Mm Mm-hmm. But... Also, it can be useful in certain situations, but if you don't have to use it, maybe you don't want to. Uh, and we've okay. talked about yeah. it some before. We have talked about it a little bit, but I've slept before, since then. But we haven't we haven't talked a lot about it, and it's been in the news a lot recently, and also for the last like ten years. All right. So I figured let's do a whole episode just about glyphosate. Great. So I hope everyone bears with me. We are going to have to start with talking about a little bit of chemistry chemistry it is kind of a mystery (laughs) (laughs) that's great great little chemistry jingle thank you so glyphosate is a phosphonic acid um its molecular form is c3 h8 n o 5 p which that p at the end is what makes it you know phosphonic so like so many organic molecules it has carbon hydrogen and oxygen (laughs) right and And it also has some nitrogen and then it got the at the end. Yeah, that little put is quite important. Um, glyphosate is a non-selective herbicide. As you said, it is an herbicide. Non-selective, meaning that it will kill most plants. It does this by, basically, it prevents plants from making certain proteins. So specifically, glyphosate stops a specific enzyme pathway, the shikimic pathway, the shikimic acid pathway. Oh. I said it wrong. You're going to have to edit that. Sorry. The shikimic acid pathway and the shikimic acid pathway. It's not like Shakira. (laughs) She's got her own little acid pathway. Yeah. And the Shakira acid pathway is necessary for plants. um, But it's also a necessary pathway that bacteria use, fungi use, algae, protozoans, like a lot of. A lot of things that live on the planet have this pathway. So it's not a very like specific herbicide. It's not like you're just getting like these certain plants. Like we have some plants where you can just kill broadleaf plants or like just kill grasses and stuff like that. This is not that. This is like pretty broad in terms of what it kills. So the shikimic pathway is like this high traffic road and glyphosate just comes in and puts up a giant roadblock. Right, for sure. Okay. Um, it comes in many forms. So it comes in an acid, a powder. It can come in like a salt form. Um, they're solids. They're liquids. There are over currently 750 products on the market containing glyphosate wow. for safe use in the U.S. Yeah, so lots, lots and lots available to buy. Agriculturally, uh, it is used on fruits and vegetables, um, it is also used on lawns a lot, huge lawn herbicide. Um, it's used sometimes in greenhouses, 
forest plantings, um, but most significantly, it is used in agronomic crops, which is things like corn and cotton and sorghum and soybeans and things like that, where it's like a big field of it. Alrighty. Sometimes glyphosate can also be used for things like crop desiccation, um, which is where you like go in and basically terminate your crop. You're like, this is as big as it's going to get. And you just take it off. Um, it can also be used to like regulate plant growth um, and ripen specific crops. Those uses are much more minor. Really what it's used for is clearing fields and like going in and killing all the weeds on big, big swaths of land. Okay. I'm very confused by the crop desiccation bit um, because you say you put it on your crops when they're too big or whatever. Wouldn't that then kill your crops? Yeah. So desiccation means like drying right. to dry out. Yeah. So yeah, basically if you're like done, if you're like this is as big as this crop gets, then you just basically, yeah, terminate it, aka kill your crop. That's as big as I want it to get. Um, and that can be, you know, especially for, for things where you are harvesting the material um, or like if you have a, a vegetable and it'll just keep growing, like squash can do that sometimes. And you're like, I need to get this squash out of the field. I'm going to put something else in it soon. You can go in with glyphosate and just terminate your crop. Um, and that way you can just harvest it all um, and then like clear the field. So you put the glyphosate on it before you harvest it? Um, you know, I don't know about that actually specifically. Uh, as I said, that's, you know, kind of a niche use of it. Okay. It's not, it's not as common. Like really what it is used for is killing weeds. Okay. Um, and it is banned in organic farming. So you do not use any glyphosate if you are organic certified anywhere at all. Right. Um, that doesn't eliminate it entirely from organic crops because glyphosate is able to what's called drift. You can have chemical drift of glyphosate, which is like if your neighbor applies glyphosate and then the wind comes and blows some of the say they you know did it in a liquid form and they sprayed it onto the the leaves and then it's hot out and so you have some evaporation and then the wind blows and then the sun goes down, then the glyphosate can just pop up off of the leaves, kind of blow over across the fence and then fall down and kind of hit your crops a little bit. It's not very significant. Um, you know, chemical drift is generally, you know, minimized because you're paying money for the herbicide. So you don't want to lose it to your neighbor's like fields if you um, can help it. And uh, glyphosate and other herbicides have been like there. there is like discussion in the farm law community about damage. Um, so if your neighbor is applying glyphosate improperly or other herbicides, then if somebody's crop gets damaged from that, like if you have a cash crop that then, you know, loses its leaves because it was applied improperly and it drifts, then like you are like a subject to damages like you can sue and say hey they damaged my crop so generally people try to minimize it a lot but it is like still possible and it does happen and one bad wind can ruin your whole day yeah and again like it's not like the the one wind is going to knock your whole crop out but it can like potentially decrease your production got it so by volume glyphosate is one of if not the most widely used herbicide According to the EPA, glyphosate was the most commonly used conventional pesticide active ingredient 
within the U.S. in 2012, and it has been since 2001. I couldn't find any data more recent than 2012, but I'm going to tell you right now, I don't think that that has changed here in the U.S. Um, Worldwide, uh, I found that it was second place um, for herbicides um, after atrazine. So it is super common. It is super, super, super common. It is the most commonly used conventional pesticide? Well, I don't like to use the word pesticide here because what the EPA is doing is the EPA is using pesticide as an umbrella term for herbicides and insecticides. Where When Got most it. people say pesticide, they mean insecticide. But like technically weeds are a pest in the definition, like the textbook definition. So that's, that's why they're using that term. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So by volume, glyphosate is one of the most widely used herbicides. Here in the U.S., glyphosate use is around 270 and 290 million pounds. And for agricultural use within home and garden, um, it is between four and six million pounds. So it's like a lot of millions of pounds of this active ingredient that is being put on plants. Um, both here in the U.S. and also worldwide. It is massive. It is the biggest herbicide out there. That's a lot of Roundup and the 749 other products that are sold with this ingredient in it. Yeah, for real. Um, And I mentioned agriculturally, I mentioned home and garden. It's really big in home and garden. It's also really important in forestry as well for like underbrush clearing Um, and things like that. I couldn't find any numbers on that, but it also is super important there. So you mentioned Roundup. Um, Some of the other names for glyphosate are Rodeo and Pondmaster. There's a lot of them. Um, It was first synthesized in 1950 by a Swiss chemist named Henry Merton, but he never published it. Um, It was patented in 1964, but as a chelator and not as an herbicide. But in 1970, Monsanto discovered it accidentally and then began developing it as an herbicide. And it was brought to market only four years later, actually as Roundup. Wow. And so for anyone that doesn't know what a chelator is, it like helps remove, you know, heavy metals from systems. Chemistry. It's a mystery. (laughs) Totally. That's all I remember. I kind of remember the mechanism, but I, not well enough to dis- do it justice. But basically, it was discovered as something other than an herbicide, and then Monsanto stumbled across it and said, oh, let's sell that. Yeah. Oh, this also will kill plants. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a huge discovery. That was a huge discovery. In 2008, um, a USDA scientist called Stephen Duke Um, as well as Stephen Powells, who is an Australian weed expert, described glyphosate as a virtually ideal herbicide and stated that glyphosate is a one in 100 year discovery that is as important for reliable global food production as penicillin is for battling disease. That's a bold statement right there. This like really, really defines how we farm now. Like the idea of being able to go in, spray something and have your field cleared and not to have to worry about things like weeds is really, really key to our understanding throughout the last 50 years of what agronomic crop production looks like. You know, when we're thinking about things like corn, like cotton, like, you know, wheat, these huge agronomic crops, this right here, glyphosate, 
was hugely, hugely important in bringing the cost so low to like historically unthought of low costs for these agronomic crops. Wow. But also the the metaphor of penicillin, I mean, if I take penicillin, it kills the bacteria, but it doesn't hurt me or any of my good cells. Whereas mm-hmm. I don't feel like that metaphor holds up for glyphosate. Well, I guess when you're thinking about it from the penicillin standpoint, like the way that we use glyphosate, it goes in and it damages weeds. And we use it in really specific ways so that it does not damage cash crops. Okay. So in that way, it's similar. But we are going to get into like in the second half of the episode, some of the like more specific claims around the safety and efficacy of Roundup. Not the efficacy, just the safety. I don't know why I said efficacy. Okay, so we'll get into that in the second half. Um, what else? So the other thing to kind of note in the importance of glyphosate is the Roundup Ready crops. Have you heard of this term Roundup Ready? Um, I haven't heard of that specific term, but I think I have heard of the concept. So tell me what you think of the concept. Like, what do you know of it? I think the concept is you plant a crop that's Roundup Ready and then you can spray Roundup indiscriminately and it won't hurt that crop. Yes. So these are GMO crops. Um, So this is things like soybean, cotton, corn, these agronomic crops we've been talking about. And yeah, it's exactly what you're talking about. Like they are genetically modified to be resistant to Roundup. So when I was talking earlier about like how we use Roundup to not harm the cash crops, this is what it is that I'm talking about. We're able to plant things like corn and then go in once the corn is up and growing and destroy any other weeds that could compete for resources with that corn. So it doesn't have to compete for nutrients. It doesn't have to compete for sunlight or water. It is just corn growing in it. And this Roundup Ready seed is really what makes that feasible and super, super cheap. What if that corn starts to take over and we can't kill it with the glyphosate? Well, there is a short story about that that you have mentioned before on the podcast. Oh, that's true. I forgot about that. <laughs> for uh, for those who don't know, it is... Ted, what's the, the name of the story? Zombicorns. Zombicorns by John Green. Uh, it is not available for purchase anywhere, but it do- did exist. Yeah. Um, yeah, these Roundup Ready crops are huge. 90% of soybean grown in the U.S. is Roundup Ready. Wow. 70% of corn and cotton is Roundup Ready. Dang. That's like yeah. most of it. <laughs> That's mo- that is indeed most yep. of it. That's, That's true. Okay. I knew it was a thing. I didn't realize it was the standard, which it sounds like it pretty much is. Yeah. It is definitely the standard. If you see corn, cotton, soybeans, other agronomic crops, there is a very good chance that that is GMO Roundup Ready bought from Monsanto and then glyphosate is used on it throughout its growing process. I love a GMO, except for certain aspects of them. <laughs> which we will talk about after the break. Yay. Okay, so let's dive into the controversy. Let's talk about the history of claims against glyphosate. All righty. So in the 1990s slash early 2000s, there was a huge marketing push that Monsanto did that Roundup was like safe for pets, safe for children, when, like their taglines were like safer than table salt and safe enough to drink. Like they were like pushing this everywhere. It was on every TV. There were posters. It was wild. 
the New York State Attorney General sued for false advertising for those specific terms, safer than table salt and safe enough to drink. So Monsanto stopped running those ads within New York State, but they did not stop like across the country because no one else sued them. Um, But like that was really when you started to see a lot of questions about Monsanto and their claims around Roundup come to the forefront. That does cause me to be skeptical, a claim like that. Yeah, (laughs) it's like very bold and very obviously illegal, right? Like it's not safe enough to drink. I'm going to tell you right now, don't drink it. It's not safe. All righty. I wonder who sold their soul to create that ad campaign. I mean, they they have been really bold from the beginning with claiming the safety of this product. Um, In 2015, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of the World Health Organization, it's about 55 years old, did a literature review of the existing science on glyphosate. Their ruling was that it was a probable human carcinogen. I mean, I'm surprised it was that late, but I guess since it was a review, it was a review of a, a lot of different studies up to that point, some of which, yeah. you know, for, you know, showed a link. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, a lot of people were surprised that it took that long. Um, there really wasn't a lot of oversight up until that IARC review of glyphosate. Okay. And there was a lot of lobbying from Monsanto. There is a lot of unanswered questions. Um, there is a book entitled The Monsanto Papers, where a reporter went through a bunch of uh, internal emails and documents that Monsanto had to release under court filings, which we'll talk about in a bit, um, that really made it seem like maybe Monsanto had a lot of power in pushing to delay or cancel those like regulatory reviews from the US from like international bodies like the WHO from other um, like groups that could have and potentially should have been doing this oversight. Got it. So yeah, their ruling was it was probable human carcinogen. Immediately, there was a lot of questions about the methods. Um, There is limited human research that was used Um, like of the impacts of glyphosate on humans. It was a lot of data around animal studies. Um, There was one very large study that followed farmers in the U.S. that was included in the IARC review that found no link um, between uh, some of the diseases that I'll mention in a second um, and glyphosate. Uh, So No one wants mm -hmm. to volunteer for that research group. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah. But... It's not it's not like it wasn't being used, you know, it's not like there weren't, you know, people out there to study it. But perhaps there was like a lack of funding available to go and study those impacts because there was a lack of political will, because it really did change the way that we consume food um, in a lot of ways. So in August of 2018, a California man uh, who was a groundskeeper and had been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a really horrible form of cancer, sued Monsanto. And a jury found that Monsanto, which was at the time had been acquired by Bayer recently, um, the jury found them guilty of acting with malice and negligence and failing to warn consumers about the risks of their product. And this was, you know, as a result of the IARC review and a lot of stories coming out specifically about non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which has also more recently been termed farmer's lymphoma. 
Wow. Yeah. So in this court case, IARC and Monsanto scientists both testified. This man was awarded $250 million in damages. Monsanto fought the decision and it was later reduced just to $20 million. There, there's a lot of like mixed thoughts on this. Uh, obviously, it's really, really sad for the man involved in the court case and his yep. family. Um, do I think that a jury is the best person to make this call? Definitely not. But after this court case, a lot more people, you know, started suing Monsanto. Um, there was another court case in March of 2019, which was settled for $90 million. There was another court case in May of 2019, which uh, was they were awarded $20 billion, I think, in damages uh, with a B, like billion with a B. In June of 2020, there was a settlement. So Bayer had a settlement with a class action lawsuit where there are about 95,000 cases included in this case, and they settled for $10 billion. That's a lot of Bs. It's a lot, right? It's like a lot. Um, and it's a lot of money. Settling is just not really admitting wrongdoing. It's just kind of like, okay, fine, we'll give you money if you go away, sort of, but kind of a little worse than that. So, right. Up until this point, there had been three court cases, all of which had been awarded in, in the millions of dollars, right? So, a settlement might have made sense from Mon- like Bayer's perspective, from Monsanto slash Bayer's perspective, in that people were going to keep suing them. Right. And this was going to be kind of a catch-all. However, yeah, you're right. Like, a, a settlement is, you know, a, a little bit like, you know, saying, okay, let's not talk about this anymore. Here's a bunch of money. Please stop talking to us. Yeah. This looks like it'll be the end of the trials for specifically glyphosate and its relationship with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and Monsanto's culpability in in that and, you know, their negligence and any claims around that. Of the $10 billion, $1.25 billion was set aside for, like, future claims, and part of that lump of money will be used to establish an independent expert panel to resolve two critical questions— One, does glyphosate cause cancer? And two, if so, what is the minimum dosage or exposure level that is dangerous? It is wild. It is absolutely wild that this product has been on the market for 50 years and these questions are not yet answered. Yeah, and it's not like they're going to be easy to answer either. Yeah. Because these lawsuits, I don't think, answered it. But again, don't drink glyphosate. Like, that's not good. So... Yeah, we have this product that makes food production significantly cheaper, but we also don't want to make people sick while we're doing it. Yeah, and that's the thing is like these people were not drinking glyphosate. They were right. not using it as table salt, right? Which is what Monsanto had been claiming in the 90s was safe to do. These were people, many of whom were like wearing the recommended personal protective equipment um, who got sick. The link is not yet proven. Um, but it does seem really clear that there's been a lot of pushes from Monsanto uh, to like keep keep that link unclear. Maybe there's carcinogens in the protective equipment. <laughs> a judge in the U.S. District Court of San Francisco, when he reviewed uh, the verdict 
the the first verdict that I mentioned that happened in 2018, he, he said that Monsanto did not seem concerned at all about getting the truth out about whether or not glyphosate caused cancer. And I think that that is like really my takeaway from doing all of this research. I have a lot more data that I can discuss and kind of summarize where we are now. But I think that like that's the thing to take away from this is if it doesn't cause cancer, why has that not yet been said? Right. Um, by anyone other than Monsanto. And that's not that's not specifically true. I did I know I just said that, but the National Institute of Health uh, did say that they found no association between glyphosate and an overall cancer risk. The EPA concluded there was no cancer risk. But to be clear, these bodies, as well as IARC, are doing reviews on existing science. So there is obviously limited existing science well it's not just that there's limited existing science it's this it's that when a scientific study is peer-reviewed and approved and published in the literature it is very difficult to take those data um, and those facts out of the literature if you know what i mean right so if we have you know studies that have been paid for by monsanto then it is really if they're in peer-reviewed literature, if they're in journals, then it's really difficult. Um, not not that it's impossible, but you know that what I'm trying to say is that it's really hard to follow the money with some of these studies. There can be studies that you know had some funding for the lab that's not necessarily related to the to the study that could indirectly come from Bayer. Um, there has been some, you know, evidence that's come out that Man- Monsanto has ghostwritten studies, whatever that means, um, where they, you know, are providing language to scientists. To be clear, like, I'm not trying to put any of these scientists at fault in this. I'm trying to say that it seems like international and national regulatory bodies um, need to get more involved in drawing a clear line between companies who have a vested interest in selling products and the money that they are providing to, you know, conduct scientific studies and the scientists and studies that are that are happening and being relied upon uh, to evaluate the safety and efficacy of these products. Yep. And Monsanto certainly has a vested interest in there not being conclusive evidence that it causes cancer. Yeah. Yeah, that's like very, very true, um, because Roundup and Roundup Ready Crops are a massive part of Monsanto's business, a massive part. So, yeah, this is definitely, definitely something that they have a very vested interest in keeping on the market. And it seems from some reporting that has come out uh, like like there has been a really big push uh, by them to keep it on the market. Well, it's useful on the weeds that grow up on the sidewalk. No, it definitely is. And in lots of places, you can still use it on weeds that grow up on the sidewalk. Um, It is banned in some places. Uh, Germany has plans to ban it in 2024. France has plans to ban it later this year. Mexico has plans to ban it in 2024. Monsanto has fought back really hard on all of these bans so far. Um, And actually, the U.S. Trade Agency also fought back really hard on the Mexico ban um, and is currently fighting back on that. Some other parts of countries, like, for example, the Indian state of Punjab has glyphosate banned. Um, There is other regulations, like in Barbados, you have to carry a license if you're going to use glyphosate. Um, Specific cities, like here in the U.S., Anchorage, Alaska, Seattle, Miami, 
Portland, Maine, LA County, New York City, my old town, Davis, California, all of those places glyphosate is banned. Here in Austin, uh, you cannot use glyphosate on any city lands. Um, so the city doesn't use glyphosate. Here currently in the US, there is only a warning label on glyphosate that it can cause eye irritation. So there's no other warning label associated with this product. So don't drink it and don't get it in your eyes. Well, not just that. These <laughs> are a lot of protective equipment and, you know, keep pets and kids away from this product if you do plan on using it because it is very clear that, you know, you you should not be close to it or get it on your body or inside of your body at all. Yeah, I think that's probably good advice. It's I don't want people to get panicky or hysterical about it and I mean, I think I even have a small bottle in the fridge that I used some last year on a weed. Editing Chris here. It's in my garage, not my fridge. It's not in my fridge. It's in my garage. But also, I want people to be careful and safe. Yeah, and I mean, personally, this is me not, not speaking as, you know, a, an expert. Personally, I tend to err on the side of caution, That's especially fair. when... It comes to, you know, chemicals and companies that have a vested interest in me using them frequently. Yep. Uh, and that is across the board, not just with herbicides. That is with many things. Like I tend to be really skeptical, especially when I know someone is trying to sell me something. Um, and the science behind it is, I don't want to say inconclusive, but, you know, there are mixed opinions from very reputable boards and bodies across the world so yeah definitely be skeptical when implementing this um and think think a little bit about where you want your money to go as well because especially if you're gardening there's a lot of really great alternatives that you can get from much smaller companies so many episodes ago we talked about farm workers rights and some of the things that they have to deal with was glyphosate sort of you know, adjacent to that? Or I know we talked about their access to protective equipment and stuff like that. Yeah. So when we talked about fine worker rights, I talked a lot about insecticides specifically. Okay. Um, because that was like kind of at the top of my list in terms of, of issues. But I don't want to minimize like the impacts of glyphosate. Like there are a lot of farm workers and farm worker groups speaking up about glyphosate um, because if you are in those communities and you develop some of these sometimes terminal illnesses, like these illnesses that can be really, really devastating and really impactful on someone's life, then yeah, you're going to think a little bit more carefully about the products that you're having to use in your job. And it is clear that farmers and farm workers do develop non-Hodgkin's lymphoma at a higher rate than the general population. So I, I want to be clear that yes, Farm workers are speaking up about this in different ways. And, you know, there are different groups speaking about it. Yeah, this is definitely something to be to, to think about, especially when you think about like power and who has power within our food system. Yep. Because farm workers definitely don't. And so if this is something that and, you know, it comes out that the data was suppressed um, or the data was never uh, like you know, collected well, uh, because there was, you know, undue influence, then we're going to have to grapple with the fact that farm workers and other people in low positions of power were really the ones to feel the 
the horrible, horrible brunt of that um, and have like really unalterable consequences. So stay safe, y'all. Yes. Stay safe. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to this episode of One to Grow On. This show is made by me, Hallie Casey, and Chris Casey. Our music is Something Elated by Broke for Free. If you'd like to connect with us, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at One to Grow On Pod. Or join our Discord and Facebook communities and leave us your thoughts on this episode. You can find all of our episodes and transcripts as well as information about the team and the show on our website, onetogrowonpod.com. Help us take root and grow organically by recommending the show to your friends or consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash onetogrowonpod. There, you can get access to audio extras, fascinating follow-ups, exclusive bonus content, and boxes of our favorite goodies. If you like the show, please share it with a friend. Sharing is the best way to help us reach more ears. Be sure to see what's sprouting in two weeks. But until then, keep on growing.